0: Ian Cunningham is the co-head of multi-asset growth at 91 in London and he sent me a piece last week that discusses how the failure of SVP financial is a consequence of something much bigger and how we might be facing the start rather than the end of a broader cycle of delinquency, default and bankruptcy. Quite a powerful statement Ian, Ian is with me now and that was before Credit Suisse Ian so you were actually, (laughs) you actually were predictive in this matter. Hi (laughs) Lindsay.
1: Yes. No, I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, the the challenge with these things is, uh, I guess things happen slowly and then they start to happen quite quickly within financial markets. And I think the um, basis for the piece is, I mean, something that's been on our minds for a long time. And I guess we've started to see signs of it beginning to play out, i.e. we've sort of been in a situation where we've uh, effectively, what we describe as a false equilibrium. So for many, many years, we've had exceptionally easy monetary policy, which has arguably been too easy, given we've seen obviously a dramatic expansion in asset prices over a long long period of time. And as we've started to exit from that situation, which I think a lot of people had started to view as normality, i.e. central banks could just print money whenever they they liked and um, interest rates would stay low for an extended period, that sort of changes behavior people take on more risk in many different ways and then ultimately as you exit out of that situation as we have been doing as central banks have been forced to to fight inflation which has ultimately been a consequence of of all the stimulus that was put in place in 2020, uh, we've started to see some of the effects begin to to turn up from that exit, from that prior sort of
0: state of what we've described as as false equilibrium. Yes, I mean the falseness of it is very interesting because if you bring it back down to things that a layman can understand is interest rates in the United States were below 1% for the 10-year bond, for example, and suddenly at one stage uh, a month or so ago, uh, they were above 4% and at the moment prevailing at around, as we pre-record this podcast, at around about 3.5%. A banking system, a financial system cannot process that sort of rise in interest rates uh, without some uh, little wobbles, and we are seeing wobbles at the moment.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think, um, I mean, as we've, as we've penned, I think it's, um, it's sort of, I guess, the, the, the challenge with where we're going is we, we have, and I think we've discussed this before, we have seen obviously one of the most rapid um, and large in magnitude hiking cycles that we've seen for, for many, many decades. And ultimately, if you have households and you've had businesses um, in many different areas of the world, uh, and in some instances, governments which have sort of taken on risk taken on leverage which was commensurate to interest rates staying low for a sustainable period of time, or they were taking on excess duration risk or uh, investing in more illiquid assets when they actually have liquidity needs, um, all of those things start to 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 sort of come come to the fore as you see the cost of money rise considerably because obviously if if people's mortgages are costing more, if companies' debt levels, if interest burdens are going up and then maybe cash flows are, are coming down also as a function of maybe slowing growth, all of these things start to sort of show where stresses are in the system under more normal circumstances, whereas those would have been well hidden in a period where the cost of money was basically Near zero or free in some instances.
0: So to so a certain extent that rather well-phrased theory by Warren Buffett. The tide is going out and the people that were swimming naked are being exposed. Is that the case? Because you say here a false equilibrium is a theoretically unstable or unsustainable situation that has been so long-lived that it appears to be a true equilibrium. The false equilibrium here is a decade and a half of excessively easy money through near zero or negative interest rates and quantitative easing which is exactly what we're not experiencing at the moment. So obviously, people are starting to have to behave differently.
1: Exactly. And I think all of these policies that have been in place were entirely appropriate for a period of time after the global financial crisis to sort of facilitate uh, deleveraging and and support economies during certain deflationary pressures with weakness in housing markets and, and the effect that has on consumption. But obviously, that went on for a long period of time and i think we all we saw a lot of i think it's gone quite quiet now but we, for a period of time we saw a lot of conversations about modern monetary theory in the sense of well, there was a lot of people beginning to think that we could just print money and it would have no consequences but it's exactly the point that that Warren Buffett has made historically that that when the tide goes out from a liquidity perspective those people who are sort of most requiring that liquidity start to come under strain most notably. And I'd say the one thing that is most interesting about where we are now is when you look back in history, we've only usually ever typically had relatively short periods of the mispricing of the cost of the money. So if you think about when the tech bubble burst in the early 2000s, we had a couple of years of excessively cheap money which sort of promoted everything associated with sort of housing markets and the like. And that played out quite quickly over a period of, say, three, four years. Um, This time, we've had a very extended period of very cheap money, which will have changed people's behaviors. And as I say, it's quite evident in everyday life that, that a lot of people did become used to money being that cheap. And there's probably a whole generation or two who've known nothing other than that. And have obviously based a lot of their decision making around that so um, as we move away from that false equilibrium we would be reasonably confident that there's I guess uh, and I guess that's why we've said this is probably more like the start rather than the beginning uh, there's a lot of things that are, are likely to sort of play out and and ultimately what we find is during booms and sort of expansions we ultimately get sort of imbalances grow um, and recessions are all about sort of cleansing those imbalances. So I think we've taught you before that we, we, our central scenario remains for a recession in, in major developed market economies. Um, yes, but it, it,
0: there's also a darker side to what you're saying now, because you say it's probably the start rather than the end of the the consequences of cheap money for a decade, decade and a half. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? I mean, when you wrote this piece, which is very thought provoking, by the way, you didn't know about Credit Suisse, or maybe you knew about it, but the markets or the market participants didn't know about it. What does that mean? Does that mean that the start is starting up and uh, the end is, is far away? Because there may be others, other banking organisations, institutions that will also suffer. I don't want hmm. to be too much of a doomsayer here, but please carry on.
1: Yeah, I think the the challenge with the Well, I mean, the interesting thing about the banking sector specifically is actually the majority of the banking sector, particularly in the large institutions, it's far healthier than it was in 2006 and 2007, for example. So leverage ratios are a lot lower. There's a lot more capital in the system. And those big banks may have to deal with your classic sort of default cycle that we tend to get through recessionary periods. There is obvious evidence that there has been areas of vulnerability within the the banking system. And obviously, we're starting to see some of those take place now. Obviously, uh, SVB was an instance of... Misallocating capital relative to their liquidity needs. So they were taking on too much duration risk, which incurred losses. And then they're obviously unable to meet redemptions of of deposits, um, which were required by their sort of tech companies, which were no longer getting sort of funding, which have obviously had money thrown at them for a decade. So there is some certain areas of vulnerability within areas of the banking system. Obviously, if authorities address that properly, that can stem some of the systemic risk. But obviously, there are risks that authorities don't address it properly. But I think also more broadly, in an environment where you've had very easy money, there's a lot of companies that have been kept alive that potentially shouldn't have been through that period because their interest burdens have been exceptionally low and they've been able to keep sort of bumbling along. And then you've also seen evidence in a number of economies, particularly Scandinavian economies, particularly countries like Canada, Australia and New Zealand. You've seen enormous building of household imbalances through this this cycle. So very high levels of household leverage and very extended housing markets, which are now also starting to come under strain, which can have a a strong effect on those domestic economies as we move forward over the next 12, 12 months or so.
0: Without being too specific, do you think that the asset classes that have done well because of the incredibly cheap money, almost zero money, when I say zero money, I mean zero borrowing costs, do you think they're now going to suffer because they've become used to that cheap money and therefore we are in a period that could last for the decade and a half that we've enjoyed in the past and we won't enjoy in the future?
1: Yeah, I think that the work we've done on this and our general thinking behind it is When you take a big step back and you look historically at how financial cycles evolve, usually one financial cycle looks very different to the prior financial cycle. I think we'd frame that we are moving away from that prior financial cycle. Obviously, things don't happen in a straight line. And if we go into recession, we may see more easy money for a short period of time. But we do ultimately believe that across the next five to 10 years, there are big forces at play, such as deglobalization, a big ramp up in defense spending due to geopolitical risks and energy transition which is very resource and capex hungry um, and we also see an end of household deleveraging in the us so so all those forces are more resource intensive they're more capital intensive they've got more of an inflationary impulse to them and we think that that changes the landscape for investing relative to the past decade so we would say The way markets behave in terms of correlations and what leads markets through the next cycle is far more likely to be sort of resource and capex hungry, while the last cycle was all about asset like businesses, disruption multiple multiple expansion and and leadership of obviously tech and tech unicorns and and all these
0: um, sorts of businesses. So what you're saying is that um, you at 91 are going to have to sit down and say right we've been used to this over the last year and a half and it served us and our clients well but now we have to serve us and our clients and even better by changing our strategy because everything has changed is that what you're saying Ian? Yes
1: I think I mean the way we try and run our strategies particularly within our sort of uh, multi-asset growth area, is to be focused on being as unbiased and, and as flexible as possible. Mm. And ultimately we feel that's that's required to sort of stand the test of time over over multiple cycles. Cause obviously if you if you run a significant style bias, such as very growth orientated strategies, which we've seen do phenomenally well over the past decade, then in all likelihood there's a good chance that they will be in the doldrums for a time to come and it will be other areas like some of our colleagues in the natural resources space and potentially in some of the more value capital-hungry type areas that could see a more prosperous period for their types of
0: strategies. Ian, thank you so much for your insight. Ian Cunningham is co-head of Multi-Asset Growth at 91 in London. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position